Welcome to Dialogue with Drake and Dabu. My name is Emma Drake. And I am Sweta Dabu. This is the podcast where we talk about all things policy, politics, and pop culture. The fall semester started this September, but students have not been flocking to campuses as they usually have in the past. As we know, many institutions across Canada have adopted either an online model or a hybrid model with many students remaining at home and very few on campus. Despite this though, many of the costs associated with attending post-secondary have remained the same. After tuition and rent, the biggest expense for students is by far textbooks. Since 1977, the cost of textbooks has risen at a rate three times that of inflation. At the University of Prince Edward Island, the average cost of textbooks per year in 2012 or eight years ago was $600 or the cost of a course. For a first year student, this cost was 655 students. And for a science student, this amount jumped to $900. A 2017 survey conducted by McLean's showed that the average cost of textbooks increased to $778 per year or an increase of over $180 in just five years. So what's the solution? Open Educational Resources, or as they're commonly known, OERs, are teaching and learning academic materials that are freely available online for everyone to use. And they could take on a variety of different formats. That could be an online textbook, it could be a question bank, audio, video, graphic, uh, and adapted to the specific needs of every course, of course. The OER movement began in the 1980s with the advent of the free software movement, which advocated for software to be free and open to modification so that users had more control over the content. This movement led to the creation of a free software standard that inspired the Creative Commons license modern OERs use. Creative Commons licenses gives anyone from individual creators to large institutions a standardized way to grant public permission to use their creative work under copyright law. This means that authors retain the rights to the work, but also get to freely distribute their materials and be able to modify for users. In the year 2000, a number of universities conducted a joint comprehensive report on how to capitalize on the dot-com boom or the increasing presence of the internet. A number of stakeholders in education met in 2002 at the UNESCO headquarters to discuss how free course materials could revolutionize higher education. This meeting aimed to develop together a universal educational resource available for the whole of humanity to be referred to henceforth as open educational resources. Since then, the developments have been many with large OER repositories being used and developed across the world. When we take a look specifically at home here in Canada, the two largest OER banks are British Columbia with BC Campus launched in 2012 and in Ontario with eCampus Ontario. Just to give folks an idea, since being launched in 2012, BC Campus has saved students $19 million in savings. Looking closer to the Maritimes, PEI was the first province east of Ontario to obtain provincial funding for OERs in winter 2019, after advocacy by the UPI Student Union and Robertson Library, when they secured a $25,000 investment 
by the government of PEI. This funding can be renewed annually to allow for the expansion of the number of materials available. Someone should check in on those student leaders to see where they are now. In summer 2020, the Council of Atlantic University Libraries also invested $35,000 in an Atlantic OER repository. This week, student organizations across Atlantic Canada, as well as the Council of Atlantic University Libraries, have organized the hashtag Students Want OERs Because campaign to underline the importance of OERs. Now, with us today, which is very exciting, is Cat Mom, retired student leader, fashion diva, and the executive director of Students Nova Scotia and our great friend, Clancy McDaniel. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Clance. Absolutely, it's, it's my real pleasure to be joining you folks on the pod. That's awesome. We feel very appreciative, not only to have an expert such as yourself, but also a great friend. So let's jump into the first question. As we know, this week is International Open Access Week. We have the UPEI Student Union, Students Nova Scotia, the New Brunswick Student Alliance, and of course, the Council of Atlantic University Libraries. And they've launched hashtag Students Want OER Because campaign, encouraging post-secondary students to describe their experiences with textbooks and the value of free academic content, such as open educational resources, the topic we will be discussing today. Clance, what would you say has been the driving force behind having this campaign uh, during this week for you folks? Sure, so if I were to go back to this time last year, um, at Students Nova Scotia, our board of directors, which is comprised of representatives from all of our members, um, really wanted to move forward with an open educational resource policy. They knew that this was something that students in Nova Scotia would really benefit from, being able to have access um, to high quality and low cost resources, especially because Nova Scotia has some of the highest tuition in the country. And so, you know, this was seen from an affordability lens. Um, but it's a project that if you're an association out there by yourself, it would be very difficult to deliver. So we were looking at finding stakeholders in the region already doing work who might want to work with us. And that's how we got involved with the um, Council of Atlantic University librarians. Um, and so they've been doing a lot of great work trying to get a framework in place for if we were to have a repository, a place to host OER in the region, how can we be supporting that? How can we create the infrastructure for that? Um, but a big piece that was missing was funding. Um, and obviously as a student advocacy organization, we have a bit more capacity and we have a bit more, um, you know, relationships coming into this type of conversation that we were able to commit and say, yes, we're going to make this a cornerstone of our advocacy for the next few years, bring this topic up with our provincial government and talk about, you know, landing some sustainable funding for this in the future. This year, we were also really glad to be able to bring on our partners at the New Brunswick Student Alliance, as well as UPEI. And we felt that we needed to do some awareness, um, particularly for the student body, because we all recognize this is a really great idea it doesn't mean that a lot of students know about it or know, you, you know, if you put out the words free textbooks or if you start talking about the mechanics of OER and what it is, 
most students agree that's an excellent idea why are we not doing it um but you know it's kind of an intimidating term not everybody is super into policy which is totally okay because i also think a big part of what student associations should be doing is making policy more transparent so students can actually get involved um, so that was really the driving force behind it. The second thing I would say as well is that we wanted to demonstrate to our stakeholders and also to educators, this is something that students want um, because we can have the funding in place. Um, we can have the website built. We can have logos done. We can throw events. Um, educators need to be involved because they're going to be the folks who are creating or adapting resources. And so starting a dialogue where folks can see from the outside looking in that there is a real push for this and it comes from students. Um, we're hoping that will impact the process moving forward. Absolutely. Now, Clancy, you've been mentioning a lot, you know, that once students, students understand the mechanics between OERs, once they understand what it really implies for them, they're always in favor of, you know, such projects. Now, when we talk about OERs, again and again, we've heard about the cost aspect of it, which is that it always ends up with significant amounts of savings for students. But what other benefits can you envision from adopting these OERs? So I think there are several. Um, something that has always jumped out to me, and I don't know if it was your folks' experience, but I, there were many times in which I bought a textbook and you did not end up using the entire thing. There was a very specific sliver of content that your educator wanted you to use. And then that was supplemented by other reading materials or articles from online or even another book, uh, which all said and told is also very expensive. But jumping around from resource to resource was sometimes difficult to do. Um, what I like about OERs in this respect is folks can create a resource that is, you know, entirely composed of material they want to use. You get to cut out the filler and really make it something meaningful to your course, customized to your course. Um, and that way, I think it will change how courses are built, because I think a lot of educators, you know, maybe build their course around a textbook now the textbook can be built around the course so it can be you know new relevant exciting emerging material from whatever field we're talking about and i think students will seek you know immense benefit from that and then similar to that another thing that i think is important for atlantic canada outside of history political science I haven't taken many courses that have had Atlantic Canadian content, if even Canadian content. Um, and so being able to have that regional focus and using relevant statistics to the situations we're seeing in our day-to-day -day lives, I hope that will also help resonate with students when it comes to the subject matter. Thank you for that, Clance. I definitely identify with that. 
as a fourth year student who has a stack of books right now, many of which the spine has not been cracked yet. You are saying music to my ears right now, uh, but that is no surprise. I, I recognize the work that you are doing and, and you're an expert in it. So I know you would know the experiences of students. But that being said, we've talked a lot about, you know, we've seen in BC campus $19 million saved for students since 2012. Uh, you know, you were just speaking to the benefits as well for educators being able to adapt their content to whatever the needs uh, they have as an educator, as well as what they want to cover and tailoring that uh, and really creating a better uh, academic resource, both for the educator and from the student. So right now, you know, we're seeing benefits on both ends, both for the educators and the learners. Uh, Clance, what would you say, though, has been the major barriers to OER advocacy thus far, as you know, we've just talked about a lot of the benefits for many different stakeholders in this situation. What would you say have been the challenges with that? So I would say that the biggest challenge is that the advocacy side around OER, from which we're talking about specifically seeking funding, seeking funding from government, in terms of a regionally coordinated effort, we're really just at the beginning. Um, you know, there have been some one-offs um, in some of the provinces and obviously UPEI has been actually at the forefront of doing this work and we're the first to see an actual funding commitment, which is great. Um, I think it kind of inspired folks in the region to really start, you know, getting on it because PEI had pulled ahead of all of us by a significant margin. Um, but now the move is really to start collating our efforts and finding a way to make the regional repository work. Um, and so when you're having meetings, when it's a brand new idea, as, as you folks know, most things don't happen overnight, even when they are a good idea. And so you have to be able and willing to keep coming back to the table and having the discussion. I am very hopeful um, about this year in particular. I know we're going to talk about it later, just because so many students are learning online that it's hard to look away from what the value of this could be. Um, I also think because overall it's a low cost initiative where really um, the funding that we would be looking at would be related to grants uh, for educators to create or adapt. Um, and I believe our threshold right now is sitting at $2,000 uh, per grant. Um, so, you know, it is relatively low cost. It has all these wonderful wonderful benefits. Um, it's a very attractive recommendation from my standpoint because high impact, low cost. Uh, but when something's new and also when it's a topic that folks aren't immediately familiar with, you have to do some more work um, to, you know, get folks familiarized and, and understanding. But I'm looking forward to seeing what happens this year in particular. Absolutely. And I think you folks are, you know, on a very exciting path here, despite many barriers you've described. But of course, this campaign and this advocacy work isn't taking place in a bubble. We're in the midst of a pandemic right now. And how do you find that COVID-19 plays a role when advocating for OERs? Um, is there a role or is there not? So I would say there is. And it's actually funny because Last year, when we brought this ask forward tangibly for the first time, I remember in one of the caucus meetings that we were at, 
um, one of the MLAs came up to us afterwards. They had been a teacher in the public school system. And he just said, you know, I've, I've been thinking this my whole career that we should be doing something like this, that we should be making things online. And I had a similar conversation after classes went online of like, I'm not saying we predicted something like this was going to happen, but isn't it ironic that, you know, only a couple months before we were saying, here's this online resource, here's how online um, can make things more accessible and more affordable for students. And I think that's very much the line of thinking that we are going to move forward with. Um, the other thing is that I think this is a positive to come out of the online learning experience. There hasn't been, uh, you know, a universally positive experience from what I can say. Honestly, it's been really difficult for educators trying to get content ready, available, uploaded for students. Students are feeling the burnout of what feels like an additional workload. Um, I think there's a lot of tweaking we need to do in order to make what we're seeing as this current online learning um, system more sustainable uh, and of better quality. I think this is a nice positive addition to that um, because I think we should be looking at anything we can do to improve that experience. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping that by using that positive motivation in, in our upcoming advocacy, that will shine through as, yes, you know, we might have a few complaints about how things have been going, but look, here's a solution for one of the issues that students are facing. One of the biggest ones, honestly, when you look at the cost of textbooks compared to other costs that students are taking on during the year. Um, and we're hoping that will be a convincing avenue. Yes, from both a policy and advocacy slash government relations perspective, this policy only makes 200% sense now, particularly during the COVID area. As you said, Clance, low cost, high impact, transitioning online. This is everything we need to do right now to both support educators and students, as well as ensuring that these investments are uh, feasible as well for decision makers and ensuring they're of value as well to the stakeholders who would be impacting. So absolutely. But we know as well, uh, you folks have been on the ground during COVID, which is really cool. You folks were set up recently at St. of X. I saw with the plexiglass, that's awesome. Masks on, perfect. So we've seen that you folks have been visiting campuses, uh, educating students both on the history of open educational resources. As you had said before, this is a you know, brand new topic to a lot of people, but then as well talking about, here's what the value of OERs can be to you, i.e. free academic content online that's accessible and tailored to uh, the content that you're studying. What have you been hearing from students on the ground amidst COVID? You know, this is a really unique time to be speaking with students, you know, face to plexiglass to face, you know, what has that been like? Well, it's been very uplifting um, to actually be in and around folks, obviously at a safe distance behind the plexiglass with the mask on, but interacting with students is the heart of student advocacy. And so it has been a difficult year to feel like 
you've had a genuine connection um, beyond, you know, the consultation that we do regularly. But I always love actually getting to interact with folks in person. I think it's so much more meaningful. And so I've been very appreciative of the opportunity to do so. In terms of talking about OERs, I think folks are having the anticipated reaction of maybe not knowing what it is, maybe kind of reading the sign and saying, what is an open educational resource? And then you start having the conversation. And that's when the stories just pour out about, yeah, you know, Every year I wait until midterms until I buy the textbook because I can't afford it and then I'm behind and then it impacts my grades or every year I race to the library to try to be the first one to take out the textbook so I can have it for studying or I don't buy my textbooks period because they're too expensive and if that means borrowing from a friend the night before the midterm that's the risk I have to take. And, you know, it really resonates with me because speaking personally, those were a lot of the situations I was in as well. And something that I always say to people is that textbooks are a slightly different type of cost. For myself, as someone who lived in residence for a few years working there, for example, I actually didn't feel the burden of my tuition and residence and meal plan costs as much because it was sitting on a student account. And if I was unable to continue paying it off, at that particular time, it would accrue interest, but I would pay it down when I can. Textbooks are an immediate upfront cost. You can't wait. So a lot of folks either have to have the cash on hand or they have to use a credit card with 22% interest to buy several hundred dollars, if not thousands, um, of textbooks. And there are also some disciplines in which buying textbooks is not uh, optional. So I was an art student and I, you know, it was great. You could go buy used on Amazon. You could buy used on the Facebook buying sale. If you're in nursing, there's so many books that are required, so many that need to be up to date because you're talking about actual medical practice that those folks can't escape paying $1,500 for their books every year. Um, and so those were kind of the stories that we were hearing from students, which, you know, validated the approach that we were going forward with, which is great. Uh, the approach has been, um, you know, contributed to by folks from all the member institutions within within call for the most part. So that has been great. But being able to speak to students, especially because it's also midterm season. So I feel like folks are really feeling the impact of whatever decisions they had to make for financial reasons now, because now really is the time where you need to be neck deep in that textbook, trying to pull out material so that you can test well. But if you weren't able to afford it in the first place, that's kind of hard to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I know, you know, even as a science student, uh, back when I was a student, I always used to think twice or thrice or ask the prof if we really needed that textbook before I bought it, or I was always running up to the library to see if they had it in reserve. So definitely, I think that's an experience a lot of us can relate to. But, you know, I think what really comes to light this week is a partnership that between student organizations and libraries themselves um, across Atlantic Canada, in many other jurisdictions as well, libraries have been some of the biggest allies when it comes to advocating for open educational resources. Can you envision any reason as to why this is? 
Well, yeah, I'm very lucky to work with um, the call committee on OER, which is students, it's faculty, it's library folks. And it really has been the library folks who were the initial driving force behind this, who've put in a lot of work, who know a lot more about the technical specifics than I do around the different Creative Commons licenses. So for listeners, these are specific uh, licenses that allow you essentially to skirt some of the technicalities around copyright. Um, and I think it's, it is really rooted in understanding the affordability aspect, but it also is all about just general open access to information. As librarians, you know, a big part of their job is connecting students, educators, folks with resources. Um, it's a really beautiful thing, you know, sending folks off to the journal that they think would be helpful for their paper, um, hosting all of these different resources and being knowledgeable in that. I think it really comes from that desire of this is the next step. This is the future um, and we should be get on it um, now rather than later. And so they've, they've been really excellent in that respect. Absolutely. I know speaking from our own personal experience at UPEI, uh, Robertson Library at UPEI were speaking about OERs before the student union had ever even considered, you know, what might that look like from a policy perspective, what might that look like from an advocacy perspective. So without a doubt in the Atlantic region, librarians, and as well across Canada, I should say, have been at the forefront of this. And as well, uh, just for listeners to give a little bit of insight about how unique that is, uh, particularly in Atlantic Canada and on PEI, is that in other parts of Canada, such as in British Columbia, or such as in Ontario, there are separate organizations such as BC campus and eCampus Ontario that facilitate the application process as well as the rewarding of grants to educators in order to compensate them for the work that they do to create these open educational resources or adapt them and whatnot. However, on PEI, we wanted to start small and build above that. And so we started off by collaborating with the Robertson Library. So uh, getting into the next question, in February 2020, we secured $25,000 from the government of Prince Edward Island to be invested into open educational resources. And that was housed particularly under Robertson Library to be able to be the facilitator of the application process and the rewarding process of grants for educators who want to adapt as well as create OERs. Uh, as well, moving forward, we saw just this summer that the Council of Atlantic University Libraries invested $35,000 into Atlantic OER creation. Uh, Clance, from these investments from the government of PEI, as well as from CAL, how has this impacted your provincial policy efforts in Nova Scotia, given that there has been that jurisdictional success from PEI with the first government investment east of Ontario, as well as that investment from call into the Atlantic region? How's that impacted provincial policy efforts? Well, it's always great to have a success story and it's always great to have a precedent that has been set 
close to your jurisdiction and in a similar jurisdiction, because I think it can be difficult as a smaller province with less resources to take a look at certain initiatives in British Columbia or Ontario, where things are just different when it comes to the public policy landscape and it comes to the resources available to fund all these great ideas. So being able to see that PEI was able to secure in the grand scheme of things, a modest investment, but one that is going to have huge impacts, but also seeing the work done by the Robertson Library, taking a look at uh, the materials put out by their working group, talking about how much money students saved in individual courses as a result of using OER, um, and being able to say, this is something that we can do for students in our province as well. Um, and talk about how we're moving towards this model of regional collaboration. It has been very helpful. Um, again, we only really introduced it for the first time last year, but even though it was a brand new recommendation, there was a lot of buzz around it because I think people saw that this was something special and it was great to be able to look at PEI, use the numbers from PEI and say, again, we're in a similar boat. Um, there's also, I think, a little healthy rivalry sometimes between the Atlantic provinces. And so nobody wants to be left behind when it comes to public policy. And so I'm not, I'm not above using that to our advantage. I mean, I hope Nova Scotia can, can live up to the expectations of PEI, but that's the great thing about an Atlantic repository because it's something that students across the region will be able to benefit from. Thank you so much for your thoughts on, you know, how the other investments have impacted students in Nova Scotia's current advocacy uh, uh, strategies. And of course, the idea of collaboration between the Atlantic provinces in order to have um, an OER repository that will be more comprehensive is such an incredible idea. And I hope it's something that's the inspiration. But for you personally, if you could have your perfect open educational resources policy, what would it look like? Uh, who would be the stakeholders? How would, how would it work? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think that the model that the Council of Atlantic University Libraries is using is a good one because like you said, I think regional collaboration on something like this, especially with the Atlantic provinces means that, you know, the dollar can go the extra mile. OERs are a really great idea policy-wise because it is relatively low cost. Um, but if we're also able to bring it to a larger amount of students and educators, um, then I think, you know, maximizing that efficiency makes it a really attractive option. Um, something as, as we mentioned earlier in the conversation as well is that OERs are not just um, about textbooks. It's about any sort of, any sort of multimedia, um, be it videos, audio, infographics, um, that can aid folks in their understanding of a concept. And so my perfect policy would encapsulate that and also equally emphasize, you know, the value of those resources as well, particularly for students with different learning styles. Um, long term, I would love to see this expand nationally and be able to start working with groups uh, like the BC Open Campus Group or eCampus Ontario, 
um, really build some momentum around a national framework because I think that will also further uh, encourage educators. And right now, stakeholders wise, I mean, we're looking at a variety of options, everything from ACOA at the federal level to our individual provinces contributing as well. Um, so I think there's a lot of possibilities for sure. Awesome, that all sounds incredible. Um, I'd encourage folks to check out the campaign online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, using the hashtag students want OERs because, and thank you so much for being with us today, Clancy. Is there anything else you wanted to add? I just want to say thank you so much to you folks for having me and thank you for starting this podcast. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm already learning a lot from the content that you folks are putting out and I'm sure all of your listeners would agree. So best of luck to you folks as you embark on this really exciting endeavor. Thank you so much. We're, we're really excited as well and we're hoping to learn things too. And now we'll move on to our second segment, MRM. Now, Clancy, right. for this segment, uh, we typically review a movie, restaurant, or music. Is there anything you'd like to share with us today? So I will go down the music route, if that's okay. Of course. Wonderful. Okay, so something that I have been listening to a lot is actually Dua Lipa's uh, most recent album, Future Nostalgia. So yes. I listened to it like the first time through when it came out earlier in the summer and I thought it was good, but I wasn't really in the right mindset to like listen to it on repeat. You know, you kind of pick out the songs that you like, you put it back on the shelf, but I have been doing a lot of writing for work recently. So I've really had it on repeat. And I'm actually a big fan of the fact that kind of disco vibes are coming back into popular music yeah. I think it's really fun it's also interesting to see and not to get too deep but you know the political implications of when disco came around and what the world was going through and also what the world is going through now but I'm just putting in Duo Lipa and being like <laughs> I'm just gonna dance it off and go today uh that's that's kind of where I'm at right now so I would give it like I'm kind of a harsh critic, so I'm going to give it an 8 on 10, mm -hmm. uh, but definitely worth listening through. Absolutely. I really like the synth sound in it as well. It's such a fun album. Absolutely. I've been listening to it all summer. Um, my review this week is a restaurant. It's called Slaymaker and Nicole's. It's actually named after the circus that was in town when the Charlottetown Conference occurred many, many years ago. And you know, for an island that typically has many things named after the Confederation, which can get a little bit old sometimes. This was a fresh take on that. So really interesting name. And the decor is really incredible online as well. It's got that very vintage feel with green velvet chairs. The bathroom is very Instagrammable. The porch is really cozy. And all in all, the food is delicious. So it's one of my favorite restaurants in town. And Emma, what movie would you like to review for us today? So first of all, I just want to say I feel very seen right now. I'm a big fan of Dua Lipa Clance. I'm so happy you brought that up. Future Nostalgia is an 
awesome album. I really love the song Levitating. I think the original version is far better than any of the remixes that have come out. So I'll just put that plug in there. As well as Sweater, you had mentioned at Slaymakers, the bathroom is very Instagrammable. I myself have Instagrammed a photo from that bathroom and can attest it is gorgeous. So I definitely agree with all those things and appreciate that you folks have brought them up. So today I'm going to be sharing the movie Beetlejuice. Of course, this is October. Uh, it's spooky season. We're looking at Halloween movies. Beetlejuice is an absolute classic for folks that don't know. Uh, it's a very bizarre kind of 80s-esque film that looks at the experience of dying. So it takes place uh, looking at this couple who have recently passed away and their experiences as the newly dead and dealing with the living. And of course, they come into contact with Beetlejuice, who is this kind of spooky type that helps the newly dead uh, deal with the living in some not so uh, conventional ways. And of course, uh, Michael Keaton plays that role and Winona Ryder is in that film as well. Uh, hashtag Winona forever. So I think it's an awesome movie. It's a classic. As a kid, I watched it every single year with my brother growing up. The reason why I bring it up today is I have a bit of a funnier story to share with it uh, that I know Clance and Sweater you two will get a kick out of and, and for listeners once you hear this you'll be like yep that's definitely Emma. Uh, so recently uh, a couple of friends and I had the opportunity to see the scarecrows downtown. And so we were walking around and my friend Sarah had never seen the film Beetlejuice. So I said, Sarah, you gotta see this, you gotta see this. It's a great film, I've seen it so many times. It's awesome, you're gonna love it. So anyways, we, we go back to my house, we get it set up and we're watching it. And so sure enough, we get into it. Um, you know, they, they pass away. They're trying to deal with this kind of new experience as the newly dead. And sure enough, I fall asleep, you know, during the first 20 minutes of the film. And after all this time, I had been telling Sarah, we have to see it. We have to see it together. It's so good. Sure enough, I fell asleep. So I know, uh, Sarah, if you're listening to this, you'll get a chuckle out of this. But I just thought, uh, that was a bit of a coincidental situation uh, that I'd like to share. So yeah, that's my movie, Beetlejuice. It's awesome. If you haven't watched it before, definitely check it out. But maybe have a coffee beforehand uh, like I should have. And that's all the time we have today, folks. Again, thank you, Clance, so much. Always a delight to discuss with you. We're so lucky to have a guest and a friend uh, like you and really enjoyed your insight that you provided with us today. As always, our music is from the talented Shane Pendergast. Once again, he's got a show coming up November 7th. That's 8 to 10 p.m. at the Tracity Cross Community Center. That's with his band, the Spud Pickers. That's Sam and Josh, Langell and Isaac King. They're awesome, all extremely talented, and it's great that they're playing together at the Tracity Cross Community Center. Now, if you're looking to get tickets for that show, again, you could get those on shamepettergas.com and Eventbrite. So check those out if you're looking to get tickets. And that's all that we have for you folks today. Thank you so much for listening to Dialogue, and we'll see you folks next Monday. Thank you. Crazy.